Super. Um, thank Jamie. Thanks very much for the invitation. And um, so, um, crystal ball gazing uh, is something that uh, uh, I think at the moment in electrophysiology isn't really what I'm going to concentrate on because we've we've almost got the technology of the future here right now. And I just want to give you uh, an insight into how technological advances have been impacting on um, treatments <coughs> we've been doing, even in the last six months, um, with a bit of hope for the future for uh, quite a common patient group. But just before I come to that, there obviously have been a huge um, number of advances in cardiology uh, over recent, uh, very recent years with a growing range of interventions, uh, manufacturers driving the processes, obviously, but these are interventions that are making big differences to patient outcomes. Transcutaneous aortic valve insertion. My colleagues have got an active program uh, going at Durford, one of the largest in the UK, and are doing very well with that. Left atrial appendage occlusion for patients at high risk of stroke, particularly those that can't take, that, can't take anticoagulation. Is it in a relatively early stage of, uh, of development? I'm not going to focus on that, but uh, I'm sure my colleagues also who uh, are coronary interventionists will also explain that uh, stenting technology has uh, improved over recent years. But um, I think of all subspecialities of cardiology, electrophysiology has been um, subject to uh, a very large um, uh, change in technology advancement. So cardiac rhythm management devices have changed out of all recognition in the last five years with new pacing, pacing algorithms, particularly for patients with heart failure, new lead technology, again improving responses to uh, cardiac resynchronization therapy pacing, so again a patient with heart failure uh, group. Um, and if you just think back uh, in my training, uh, the Oxford Textbook of Medicine in 1991, uh, when I was uh, two years with my third year of med school, had absolutely no mention at all of AF ablation. And that's what I spend about three quarters of my time doing uh, and thinking about. And uh, uh, yeah, so those of you at a sort of earlier stage in training, um, perhaps have that to reflect on and, and, and wonder what you might be doing in your chosen specialty in years to come. Uh, but just thinking about AF, uh, that's what I want to focus on in terms of uh, where we're at now and what might be uh, the promise for the future. Uh, we've come a long way in our understanding of atrial fibrillation. Um, since the late 90s, a French group identified a subset of patients with lone AF, so structurally normal hearts, in whom ectopic beats originating from the pulmonary veins were seen to be triggers for atrial fibrillation. Uh, they're a patient group with paroxysmal rather than persistent AF. And um, that, that group um, performed pioneering work to ablate those ectopic foci and actually demonstrate that you could eliminate atrial fibrillation in that patient presenting at a relatively early stage in their disease. We also know from various um, experimental data that re-entry within the atria is an important substrate underlying atrial fibrillation. And there's been a recent advancement in technique called body surface mapping where one basically wears a jacket with over 200 electrodes and you can look at the waveform of atrial fibrillation for each individual patient 
and potentially tailor a patient-specific treatment, ablation treatment, according to their particular pattern of atrial fibrillation waveforms. That's a very exciting development. And we know that uh, AF begets AF. There's a quite, quite a famous animal model of atrial fibrillation where rapid atrial pacing has been used to induce AF. And the more AF they have induced by pacing, the more they just spontaneously have AF. So we know that there's a, a sort of complex substrate underlying the development of atrial fibrillation. So from PV foci to local re-entry in the antra of the pulmonary veins, then re-entry within the whole of the atrium as the disease gets more advanced and gets into a persistent uh, AF state. Um, uh, so by which stage the pulmonary vein foci may not be that important for the AF process. What this has led to is a concept of electrical disconnection or electrical isolation of those irritant foci within the pulmonary veins and we, uh, if at all possible, like to address the disease in its earliest stage because we don't have to worry so much about the complex and ill-understood patient-specific factors uh, that have led to the more disorganised atrial substrate underlying persistent AF. Bottom line is we can eliminate triggers in patients with paroxysmal AF usually but dealing with all of the arrhythmogenic substrate in patients with persistent AF is an absolute nightmare because although I've said this body surface mapping technique is useful to try and individualise ablation for each patient, it's actually a little bit more complicated than that and outcomes are by no means uh, guaranteed, good outcomes are by no means guaranteed. The problem with electrical isolation of the pulmonary veins is that the anatomy is a bit challenging. Uh, it's uh, uh, quite a number of individual ablation lesions. If you're doing a point-by-point -point ablation approach with a 35 millimeter tip catheter, you may be having to do in excess of 120 ablation points, all of which have to be contiguous, uh, creating a transmural atrial burn, but not going through the atrial wall and creating a tamponade situation. So success rates first time round, good heart rhythm control aren't fantastic. It's time consuming between three and four hours, often under general anaesthesia. And um, there are important risks because of the indwell time of catheters inside the left atrial chamber and because of this tension that I mentioned. So wanting as an operator to provide as good a possible treatment first time round uh, to make each ablation point enduring but not to apply unwittingly too much ablation at any individual point and run the risk of cardiac tamponade. And fatalities have been reported because of a knock-on effect of one or other complication. You can imagine what has happened uh, uh, since its earliest um, inception of, of this concept of ablating the pulmonary veins. Basically, one device manufacturer after another has fallen over themselves to try and provide the answer to enduring isolation of the pulmonary veins first time round. So applying a kind of branding iron almost type uh, piece of equipment, this um, flexible ring here has got ablation electrodes on it, which ablate both uh, between adjacent poles but also in a kind of unipolar fashion, deep to the tissue. Um, we have also a cryo balloon, so this is wedged into the ostium of the pulmonary vein, uh, seen on x-ray here, dyes injected beyond, so the pulmonary vein fills, and when you don't get any 
efflux of diad, you know, got a good contact with the cryoballoon, and in theory a freeze uh, can actually eliminate the uh, electrically excitable tissue at the ostium of the pulmonary vein in the same kind of way as if you burn it with radio frequency, which is what I described in the first approach. This is a laser balloon. We don't use that here, but again, the same kind of concept. Here you can actually visualise an arc uh, of laser as you go round the pulmonary vein ostia, so left inferior pulmonary vein, left superior pulmonary vein, and you know just visualise exactly where you've burned. Um, and this is a kind of 3D map, uh, poorly seen, I'm afraid, because it's uh, too small, but basically a load of uh, multicoloured um, dots to represent where a catheter has been hopefully not just wandering in an aimless fashion and providing what looks like a nice picture but nothing effective, but hopefully each individual point providing a perfect transmural burn to electrically isolate the veins, which from the back of the heart here, left upper, left lower, right upper, right lower. So um, this is actually the technique that I want to talk about a bit more. It's what I spend uh, quite a... Uh, uh, surprising about my uh, working life doing and uh, uh, yes just to reiterate as a medical student I never would have thought I'd be doing that making a essentially a fancy computer game for myself and uh, uh, creating a nice pretty picture but actually it can achieve a lot for each individual patient so um, it may seem crazy to uh, an audience um, hearing about this to conceive of, of this approach where we are laboriously putting 100 plus uh, lesions in when actually all we've got to go by as to the appropriate contact and stability of the catheter with the tissue is just the human hand and how it feels and how it looks on an x-ray. If you consider an x-ray is just providing one dimension, so the catheter tip could be moving uh, in a certain plane, but you just can't see it on the x-ray. So um, we nonetheless, over the last... Uh, 10 years plus have been using just that kind of technology and it's only in the last 18 months that we've for the very first time been exposed to the widespread clinical release of catheters that can tell us to within a one gram um, uh, uh, degree of accuracy exactly what contact force we have between the catheter tip and the left atrial wall. Um, there's two systems currently on the market, this one released based on an optical fiber technology, the uh, basically the displacement of the catheter tip will change the uh, the way the light is reflected back from the tissue. <coughs> this is sensed by this uh, system, and it and it is converted into a contact force and also a vector of contact force. And this is a bit of a pronounced view here; it doesn't usually bend to this degree, but it has basically a spring at the tip, and the spring will measure every hundred milliseconds the contact force being applied and also give a vector so you know whether you're applying in this direction or this direction whatever so in the last 18 months we've been uh, learning as we go uh, really what degree of contact force we need for the first time some of us using this technology have actually just been doing what we would normally do try not to be swayed initially by the contact force um, and and you know try and just get a better idea of where the weak spots on the ablation line uh, are. Uh, I'll come back to that concept but just to highlight some research done by uh, really the great and the good in EP uh, listed at the top. Um, this was a study using the optical fibre based contact force sensing catheter and uh, basically it showed what's in quite a clear result, on about 45 patients 
if you have an overall low ablation contact force, um, you'll have a very, very high chance of AF recurrence. Um, if you have more than 20 grams of contact force, much lower risk of AF recurrence at 12 months. And there's this concept of the force that you're exerting and the time that you're spending on a particular site that's integrated to the force time interval, so the area under the curve of the force along with time. And they uh, produce quite a useful concept of this per lesion, if you're applying between 500 and 1,000 force time integral per ablation lesion, you're getting sort of equivalence in terms of outcome. But as soon as you start to go above 1,000 contact force per ablation lesion, you're having a, a much higher success rate. But still, it's not perfection. So there is something missing. Um, a subsequent study using the same technology and the same group of investigators uh, basically refined their technique a little bit and looked, if you break down the each pulmonary vein into six segments based on a clock face, um, you can come up with this concept of segments that showed electrical reconnection at a redo procedure. So the reason why patients get AF back after an ablation is usually because of some weak point in the ablation line, either because the amount of contact force you um, applied was lower, or maybe the catheter just wasn't as stable, so you thought that you're applying a decent contact force, but the catheter was sort of skitting along a bit. So in terms of a segment-by-segment -segment analysis, they again clearly showed that segments that were, uh, I that were isolated had a higher contact force overall, and the minimum contact force was also higher, and the minimum per lesion force time integral was also higher. So you could kind of see how a segment that had a gap, you've got a weak point. There's a uh, one lesion with a force time integral that's somewhat lower. So this is all very, very interesting information for, for, for the electrophysiologist uh, uh, reading because it starts to provide some understanding as to why patients come back after one ablation, why we don't get good first-time procedural results. And trust me, when you have, I mean, I'm sure all of you have come across patients with AF. Uh, patients who present to emergency services tend to have um, uh, you know, very important burden of symptoms and, you know, it, it can be the bane of their life, uh, not knowing what is going to happen next, as much as one can try and reassure them that they're not going to have, uh, you know, a, a sort of fatal complication next time AF recurs. It's just going to be kind of nuisance-level symptoms. It can be really hard to get some of these patients out of almost a kind of, almost a um, sort of catastrophic mindset, really. Um, so we're all searching for perfection, and I'm afraid to say this is a, uh, a sort of typical picture from uh, from my kind of experience for someone that had their AF back after one ablation procedure. So again, um, I'm not sure which computer game this most resembles, but um, anyway, it's from the back of the heart, the left-sided veins upper and lower, and the right-sided veins upper and lower. And basically, this little cluster of blobs up here and here is what was required to deal with electrical reconnection in this young man. He's only in his late 30s. So the vast majority of the, the arc around that left upper pulmonary vein, maybe 90% of it, was absolutely fine. Frustratingly, all it needs is a little strand 
of reconnected tissue to allow all of those impulses to flood out of that vein and to trigger AF again. The lower veins, I mean, the colour coding here just shows the voltage. So red is scar or dead tissue, basically. So we'd actually eliminated the electrical activity within the pulmonary veins uh, in the lower uh, of the two pulmonary veins, in keeping with both of those being isolated. So really frustratingly, you know, 50% of the veins are okay, but of those veins that weren't okay, it's only a tiny little bit that wasn't quite right. Um, and of course, I've said that this procedure has risks. You'd think that the risks would be higher for a first-time procedure, having to apply 100 or so ablation lesions, but you can't really quote any lower risk for a redo procedure. You've still got an indwell time of catheters in the left atrium, so I'm still exposing someone in their late 30s to a risk of stroke and other risks. So how can we do this better? How can we avoid those, those weak points? Well, in July uh, last year, the um, manufacturer of this uh, 3D mapping system just produced this software package. Uh, none of us on the ground uh, in sort of jobbing EP uh, land at least knew that this was coming. And uh, basically, it's a software package that allows you to um, deliver a little blob on the surface of your left atrial geometry as an indication of how stable your catheter is and how much contact force and how long you've been on a certain spot. So the contact force uh, kit that I told you about earlier had no means of integrating any measure of stability. So you're still relying on an operator thinking, oh yeah, it's stable, go on here. Whereas this for the very, very first time allows you to predefine at the start of the case what you think should be catheter stability. Now the problem is, it's never been studied prospectively, we have no idea what the settings should be. Um, all we know is from other operators and other studies in a slightly different technology that this kind of forced time integral of around 500 per lesion is what we think we should be going for. Um, so I thought that was very interesting and uh, really wanted to look at this instead of having any notions to what the measure should be, wanted just to study prospectively a set of patients that were coming through the lab in, in, in my care on the understanding that usually if there's a recurrence it's because of one tiny weak point rather than the whole circumference being a problem. So could we look at intra-procedural outcomes, look and see where the weak points were during the ablation procedure and then learn something so that for the next patient and the next patient and the next patient we can be applying progressively better sort of personalized tailored based on what my hands are doing ablation so th this is the kind of screen that one sees at setup you can't really see, see that but basically what I've specified is that the catheter should move for no more than two millimeters for at least three seconds and only when that three seconds at minimum two millimeter sorry, a maximum two millimetre displacement is a, is a little blob going to come up on my geometry. Now, the blob doesn't really mean anything in terms of what I've done at the tissue. It just means that my catheter has been stable. And in theory, if I apply energy for long enough, I should get an effective ablation lesion there. So the contact force sensing catheter is called Smart Touch. And we had, as it happens, 11 first-time ablations that were immediately leading up to the changeover in July last year to using this new software. And then using Visitag, this stability uh, package, um, we had six 
patients in a row in July and August that were um, identified as useful to study this. But it wasn't using the force time integral as a guide. All I was doing was just turning this on and letting it give me a blob because hitherto uh, it's been up to a technician just to put a click on the geometry as an indication of where they thought the catheter was. So again, very, very hard to kind of understand how this almost ever worked if you've got uh, an operator that didn't really know how stable their catheter was, didn't really know how much contact force they're applying, and if they're relying on a technician just putting an indicative blob on the geometry when the technician and the operator together thought they'd been on a site for long enough, <laughs> you know, how on earth would we ever get anyone treated first time round? But anyway, um, fascinatingly, without any any kind of conscious change in the ablation approach, we saw an enormous difference in a very important intraprocedural endpoint. It's a very interesting part of my job is to sit and just watch the screen for half an hour, waiting for ablation lesions that I've done to show any signs of healing up. It makes sense. If you've got a weak point in a line somewhere, why don't you wait for as long as possible to, to let it herald itself at the time when you actually have catheters inside so you can do something about it. So one of the highs of EPs that you uh, you spend at least half an hour just sitting twiddling your thumbs and waiting to see if there's any sign of reconnection. But it means that we've got a lot of data that we control because in the Smart Touch Alone group, we had a, a rate of spontaneous reconnection uh, without any provocation within the first half an hour of 16%. We can give adenosine. It's not only useful for SVT uh, acute conversion, but it's also useful to show up this phenomenon of dormant conduction, almost waking up areas that are just partially damaged but not completely damaged. And we got an important rate of adenosine-induced sort of dormant conduction. So that was in the 11 cases immediately leading up to July last year. And then, you could have knocked me over the feather, when the first six patients, absolutely no spontaneous reconnection, and only one vein out of 24 possible veins, four for each patient, showed adenosine-induced reconnection. The numbers are small because at that moment the company had to withdraw the contact force sensing catheter. There was a problem with the irrigation flow. One of the technicalities of it is it needs to be irrigated with cold saline. So they had to withdraw it uh, from circulation. So we've only recently got the catheter back to use again. I haven't shown the data here, but very usefully then, instead of using um, this, this contact force sensing with stability sensing, I got to do a consecutive series of patients just with stability sensing. And basically, with, with, with no contact force and just this stability package, the reconnection rates go straight back up to what they were with the contact force sensing alone. So we've got a big difference achieved, and we don't yet know how, by having stability measurements at the tip of the catheter uh, displayed in real time. And this is... Uh, what you get and it's basically in its current iteration a bit of a nightmare to try and work out exactly uh, why this has worked. One, one needs offline to click laboriously point by point by point by point and try and tot up how much force time integral, what the duration was, what the range of contact forces were. So you can imagine it's given a very uh, interesting insight and one that I've been desperate to uh, understand because I can start to apply a different ablation protocol to my patient group. And the company have been very helpful. They've uh, 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 downloaded these studies for me and analysed all the data points. And what we actually see is that if we use the same kind of six-segment model to divide up 
the uh, perimeter of each pulmonary veins, we see this is median 75, 25 and the max min values. Rather than having to have between 500 and 1,000 FTI per lesion, we're actually seeing with this stability package that actually per segment you can have 500 to 1,000. And actually, this is on the first five patients in whose data I could get downloaded. So all of them had enduring PV isolation out to 30 minutes. And no, and, and, and um, the, these patients don't constitute the one vein that had adenosine-induced reconnection. All of them, amazingly, had that very, very tight endpoint with far, far lower amounts of contact force and time spent than what is suggested by the great and the good in EP, albeit using a different technology. So when you have some measure of stability, one can get away with applying far less ablation energy. And, you know, intuitively, one would think that's a very good thing because the more ablation energy you apply is more damage, basically, and the greater chance of tamponade. So an absolutely fascinating insight into, uh, uh, you know, exactly what one's hands are doing after, you know, training since 2005 in AF ablation and, and, and not having any immediate feedback as to what my hands were doing other than, you know, at six months or 12 months, what happened to the patient in terms of recurrence rate. We now have the ability to really closely interrogate the ablation lesion set that we're doing at the time. And for this ablation of all, where we have far lower success rates than any other ablation we do, we have a real chance to step up and improve our long-term outcomes. Obviously, it's too soon to comment on long-term outcomes, but there's been a big biological difference in these patients acutely. We've gone from having almost 20% of veins reconnecting within half an hour. Okay, we touch up those areas, sort them out acutely, and just accept it as one of those things. But I'm wanting to think that there must be a biological difference in a lesion set that has almost zero reconnection acutely. And it's going to be interesting to see in the next year, two years, what happens in terms of uh, longer-term outlook for these patients. So I've just hoped to give you an insight into um, uh, my working life and how uh, only now are we able to actually identify and interrogate what uh, is happening at the catheter tip during ablation of this common arrhythmia and at least in its current iteration an arrhythmia that with all of the technological advances really isn't dealt with adequately first time round, even when it's just lone paroxysmal atrial fibrillation and all we need to achieve is enduring isolation of the pulmonary veins. So this new software package that the engineers dreamed up uh, without uh, a sense, I think, of the power that it might have really stands a genuine chance of completely changing what we do in atrial fibrillation ablation because it's a lower success rate procedure. But one can also envisage changing to use it as a standard approach on some of the ablations that we hitherto think are more likely to succeed for, for the first time around. But we can define exactly what kind of lesion set we need uh, for AF and, and maybe all patients undergoing catheter ablation. Thank you very much for your time. Happy to have any questions.